This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm so glad you're with us here on The Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I hope you've subscribed to our daily Clark.com newsletter. I want to tell you, I look at that thing and I cannot believe the talent among our writers, the experience, the knowledge, the training they have. And so the information we have for you will really help you pack a punch in your wallet. And I want you to do that with money advice you can trust. You know, we leave this world with or without our integrity. And it's so important to me that everything we provide to you is what we believe to be right in our head and our heart. Now, in this episode, I want to talk about an inflationary cycle that is really, really different and runs totally counter to something I talked about a year ago. And it's a stunner what I'm going to share with you. And also, I've had so many questions from people about money that you're trying to stash in savings. The best way to do it, and particularly with the way circumstances are changing with what looks like it's on the horizon with interest rates, I have specific ideas for you about the money that you are putting aside, not in investments, but in available cash. I'm going to talk about that. Okay, so I talked about something a year ago that got big pushback, big pushback. I was talking about how for an individual or a couple that grocery store inflation had gone so high that in many cases, it had become potentially more affordable for an individual or a couple to eat out instead of buying groceries and eating at home, which was a completely radical thing to say. But I gave actual real-world examples about how for a family of three, four, five, six, it was still much cheaper to eat at home. But for a single individual or couple, the math had changed because grocery inflation was so high and restaurant inflation Not really. Well, now here we are a year approximately later, and that has all changed because grocery prices this year have gone down. I know you don't believe me. I promise. Overall, grocery prices have gone down where restaurant prices that were a relative deal compared to groceries Restaurant prices are going up significantly right now. Why? What is one of the key expenses that a restaurant faces? Labor costs. 
And because of what's been going on with rising wages, restaurants feeling pressure from inflation over time and food prices, some of which they absorbed to hold down restaurant prices, restaurant owners have reached the breaking point. Chains have reached the breaking point. And now restaurant prices, and the stats are clear as could be, restaurant price inflation is significant and meaningful and meaning your dollar eating out is not going as far as it did even six months ago, where grocery prices are bending back. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to collapse, but the wave of inflation in groceries has been broken, and it could resurrect its ugliness, but I don't see signs on the horizon of that happening. And so the normal effect of eating at a lower cost, buying groceries and eating at home is clearly there again, even for a single individual or a couple. So eating out becomes a lifestyle choice again, where for that brief window I talked about a year ago, it was for many people a toss-up or cheaper to eat out than buy groceries and eat at home. We're back to the historical thing where I can't give you the green light for your wallet to go eat out as a way, hey, I'm saving money by eating out. That's over. Now, what will happen in the restaurant business, restaurants will hit a point of price resistance. When they hit that, restaurants adapt. Restaurateurs are so great at adapting to circumstances, and they will do whatever. I was at a restaurant recently in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I was there for our Habitat build, we were doing our second annual Clark Howard Blitz build in Tulsa. Uh, And we were at dinner, and we went to a restaurant that had converted from traditional waiter and waitress service. They had pivoted where you ordered at a counter or on your phone. And then a server would bring your food to you that was their involvement in the process. So basically, they had food runners instead of what they were doing before. And that's one of the things that you're going to find a lot of mid-price restaurants are going to go to labor-saving systems that give them the ability to serve you in a different way, but able to keep price points at a price that's pleasing to your wallet. And then there will be places that so much a part of the experience is the atmosphere and the waiter or waitress service, the server service, whatever you'd call it. And they will still do that, but the cost pressures and labor pressures are going to lead to more and more places going to a hybrid where you're responsible for ordering, you might pay on your phone, whatever it is, and the food will come to you, but you'll do the other things involved with it except the cooking. Krista, All right. any restaurant you like to frequent converted from having full waiter service to something more? Oh, yeah. I have several have, actually. Um, and we've actually been eating out less because of the prices and everything else. So John in Texas says, I listen to your podcast every day. You always talk about how bad whole life policies are and how we should purchase term. My wife and I are looking for long-term care protection. Your website article on LTC 
recommends a hybrid policy, which is essentially a whole life policy. It is a whole life policy. Is this a situation where you would recommend one? Yes, it's an exception to my rule. So if you're really worried about the cost of long-term care insurance, a hybrid insurance policy is a viable alternative because the long-term care insurance market is flat out broken. The insurer's have repeatedly broken promises to people who, in good faith, bought policies uh, even decades before. And what they do is they put you into what is called the insurance death spiral. They keep raising premiums to a point where people give up after they pay decades for it. The idea of a hybrid insurance policy is where you buy a whole life insurance policy, which Normally, I don't recommend whole life because the policies have massive commissions in them. They're so expensive to buy for death coverage. But this is an exception to my rule. Because what happens is these policies come with a provision where if you end up needing to move into an assisted living facility or need care uh, for life's daily activities is what it's called, which could be at your home or in a facility, then you can trigger a payout from the policy. Federal law is friendly to this. And you have the ability, instead of having a death benefit from it, going to your loved ones, it is a living benefit to provide for long-term care with a cap based on the size policy you buy. The reason long-term care insurance policies failed is the actuaries at insurance companies are really bright people. They blew it on long-term care. People have lived longer and with poorer health than the actuarial tables predicted. And so that's why the insurers failed in the long-term care business. In this case, with the hybrid policies, you have a known benefit, the insurer knows the risk, they're paying either way, either at your death or for a living benefit. And so it is a compromise kind of strategy for you to have peace of mind about whatever amount of coverage you buy for long-term care embedded in that hybrid policy. And the insurer has peace of mind that they're not going to blow it at the actuarial level. Todd in Ohio says, I'm a firefighter who plans on retiring in about four years at the age of 52, where I will collect a pension. I've worked enough other jobs over the years to qualify for Social Security. I don't plan on working after I retire from the fire service. How can I estimate my Social Security benefit? Will those websites like MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com be of any use to me? Can I use it now if I know I'll never work a Social Security job again? So, Todd... First of all, you're a brave man. I don't know how firefighters have the bravery that you all have to run into a burning building at great risk to yourself to save others. I mean, it's unbelievable what you do as a firefighter, and I appreciate so much your years of service. The Social Security system does not appreciate when a worker retires with a full pension at a younger age than normal, in your case, 52, 
And the Social Security Administration has a very clear briefing you can find on socialsecurity.gov that walks you through what happens when you take early retirement, like in your case, and you're 14 or 15 years before full retirement age. There's a formula that's clearly stated on the Social Security website, shows if you never work a Social Security eligible job again, how your benefit is reduced from what it would be otherwise. And it's a formula based on how a Social Security check is calculated, which is your highest 35 years of earning. So any year you don't have earnings, what they do is they zero you out. And that year figures into the average and it kind of brutalizes what Social Security check you'd get sometime between age 62 and 70 whenever you take it. So you don't need the software that I talk about, like Maximize My Social Security. You can sign up for a Social Security account, get their estimate of earnings, make sure it's accurate, and then you'll see they're going to take 35 years of that, and you're going to be able to see how many zeros you're going to have. It will calculate for you. So it's fantastic you're going to have that firefighter pension for the rest of your life because the Social Security check is not going to be that great, unfortunately. But you'll be able to scope that out yourself. Brett in Oklahoma says, I usually use the same hotel chain, and I was surprised to discover that my room smelled like a dog. Not a doggy-doo Clark Stinks dog, but the faint smell of a lightly wet dog. I asked if there were any rooms that were not dog-friendly, and they informed me that they reserved floors two and three for dogs and use other floors like mine for overflow. We also had a barking dog next door. At breakfast and during our stay, I saw more dogs at this hotel than any other hotel I've ever stayed at. I thought maybe there was a Purina convention in town or something. We don't hate dogs. It was simply an unwelcome smell for a hotel room. Because the view was nice, we actually stayed our entire three days that we had booked. My question is, how can I avoid these super pet-friendly hotels in the future? I don't mind an occasional dog, but it's starting to feel like 101 Dalmatians. Wow, wow. There are so many more dogs, so many more pets that people have right now that we've talked about the pandemic puppies, that hotels are, in many cases, being surprised by the demand they have for rooms that are dog-friendly. Hotels that were not pet-friendly have found they're being asked so much about it now, post-pandemic, that more and more hotels that did not allow dogs before now are allowing them. This hotel, having designated pet floors, I didn't know that was a thing. Did you know that was a thing? I did. I did. And honestly, like that he was in an overflow floor, right. I would definitely ask to not even be on an overflow floor in the future. So one of the things I've never thought about asking for at a hotel, so you've added one to my list. This year, I'll probably be in hotel rooms, hotel nights, about 75 or so nights. I've not had this before. But my wife says I can't smell anything anyway, so there could have been a pet odor in a room and I wouldn't have noticed. But thank you for pointing this out. And for people that are sensitive to smells, knowing to ask that at a hotel check-in is great. And I'm really sorry that 
it was a bit of an inconvenience for you in the hotel. And you make clear you're not an anti-pet or anti-dog person, which is uh, something that was really smart for you to point out because dog owners are very sensitive about things involving their pets. Coming up ahead, so much talk about the uh, little firestorm we had about FDIC insurance earlier this year, worries about are there other shoes to drop. But I wanted to tell you there's a strategy I want you to be aware of that avoids you having to worry about the solvency of a bank and it will make you more money at the same time. How's that for a combo? One of the effects of the banking problems that occurred earlier this year is making it more difficult for small businesses to borrow money right now, which the American economic engine is based on small local businesses. And so the Federal Reserve, ironically enough, is likely not to engage in raising interest rates by any significant amount moving forward as a result of the problems that happened with banks that needed FDIC backup for accounts beyond a quarter million dollars from the FDIC system. And we are almost certainly near a peak in interest rates, just about there. Interest rates may stay there for a while, but then they're going to start coming down. And I I watch patterns, and there's a clear pattern right now in the financial markets. If you put money in a one-year CD at most financial institutions, you're now earning a higher rate of interest than you would on a five-year CD. Very, that's known as an inverted rate curve. Because usually the longer you tie up your money, the higher an interest rate you're rewarded with for giving up some freedom and tying up your money longer. And so normally I talk about you know, money you don't need in the next few months or next year, that there's an advantage to buying a longer-term CD. And I talk about CD ladders. I've talked about it, gosh, for decades. The idea that if you divide your money into piles and you first buy a one-year CD and a two-year at the same time, one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year, and then every year you've got 20% of your money back available to you if you don't need it, you buy a new five-year CD and you always have 20% of the money you parked in CDs available to you. That's called the ladder. And the idea is to eventually get all your money in five-year because you earn the most money in it. Except now, because the markets are pricing in a slowing economy and reduced inflation. Inflation is still with us, but down significantly from where it was before. And so interest rates may well be uh, really close to their peak. So what institutions are paying varies wildly on any CD. And you have the ability to shop around and find the best deals available right now on five-year CDs. So money you know you're not going to need for a good long while that is money you don't want to invest, but you'd like to have it in reserve and savings, this is a time that's a really good idea to buy a longer-term CD like a five-year CD. So how would you do that? How do you shop around? How do you find it? All right, this is a twofer. I've talked through the decades also 
about why you buy CDs through a discount broker instead of buying them directly from a bank. Because banks tend to offer two rates, one on their wholesale side and one on their retail. And they take advantage of their most loyal customers that go direct to them to buy a CD and offer a better deal through discount brokers because they're trying to grab some what's known as hot money. There are people that are brand loyal first, then there are people that want the best deal first. So if you buy your CDs through the discount broker, you've got, as I called it, a twofer. You've got magnified FDIC insurance because through the discount broker, they can place your money with so many institutions, you have millions of dollars of FDIC insurance coverage, where with a single institution, you only have a quarter million. And they're able to get you the best rates better than you're likely to be able to find on your own. Now, it is true that at most places, you're going to find a lower interest rate on that five-year versus a one. But think about it. You take that higher rate for a year, five point something percent if you shop around for one year CDs versus probably four point something on the five year. What happens a year from now? Let's say we're in a mild recession. Let's say we've truly broken the back of inflation a year. Then when you go to buy a new CD a year from now, the rates may be much lower than they are now. So that's the advantage of doing a ladder even today. The money you know you're really not going to need for 60 months, uh, put a meaningful amount into a five-year CD. Money that you feel like you'd like to hedge your bet some because who knows for sure which way interest rates are going to go. You can do it one year. And yes, you'll get the higher rate on the one than the five. But you, the five-year money, you know you'll get at least that four-point-something percent for the next five years, which is very favorable. One thing never to do, this is a never rule. Unless you hate your money, you have to hate your money to do this. Go to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, or Citibank to buy CDs. Because they play you for a fool. They pay such ridiculously low rates on their CDs, they're taking advantage of you. You let regular old savings sit in Bank of America, Chase, Citi, or Wells Fargo. They're playing you as a fool again. Don't let them do it. And remember, the discount brokers are your best friend. Places like Wealthfront, Betterment, Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, that's where you're going to get the best deals, FDIC insured, on your CDs and on your savings as well. Go to questions. Casey in North Carolina says, my boyfriend and I are heading down the path to marriage. Congratulations. And although he hasn't proposed yet, I have convinced him to purchase a lab-made diamond. Don't worry. The next step is picking a venue, and we can't seem to justify spending $10,000 for a party that's only going to last six hours. We work so hard to save our money, only to spend it in an instant. Any suggestions on ways to avoid spending so much money on a party? And we did have a couple of other questions. One was from a mom who has two daughters getting married this year, and she was asking about buying the, the uh, flowers 
from a warehouse club, the wedding, you know, you can do, do the wedding flower kits and just how else they can save money. So, so you just, you just addressed one of them right there mm-hmm. with the flowers. My oldest Rebecca, when she got married, she and her husband made a decision. I've told this story before. I said, I've got this money, Rebecca, for your wedding. You can either spend it on your wedding or you can spend as little as possible on your wedding and use the rest for a down payment on your home. And that's what they chose to do. And they did an ultra budget wedding from the flowers to everything they did. People would say they cut every corner, but you were at the wedding. It was a beautiful Beautiful, wedding. Beautiful. And I have to say, your son-in-law makes you look like a big spender sometimes. He's so good with money. Oh, he... He makes me look like I'm careless with my money. Travis is so, <laughs> He's so, so good. thrifty. So how do you do the party? Number one, never use the word wedding with any facility. Second, you say wedding, everything goes up in cost. Now, we had a number of Clark stinks from people in the wedding business when I said this before, but it's a fact. Number two, we've got all these nature centers in any metro area in the United States, and they have pretty informal kind of facilities. You can rent those for a party very inexpensively. There are any of a number of park-like settings, public parks that have indoor-outdoor kind of venues that you can, you know, they're screened in kind of covered places that you can have a very inexpensive wedding. My daughter's wedding was at a public park. And they got married on a Friday, from what I recall, and that also saved money. So getting married on a different day. Yeah, and my um, my nephew got married on a Monday night because that was the cheapest they could rent a place. So it runs in our family. <laughs> the spirit of thrift. So it does not have to be expensive at all. As someone else pointed out when this came up before, Why does no one ever mention getting married at a church and using the um, friendship hall or whatever it's called at Mm -hmm. the church where you can have an extremely inexpensive reception in a church hall? That is an alternative that's a very affordable way to not have a reception at some expensive place, have it right in the church facility. Okay, Mark in Oregon says Clark mentioned that he was taking mass transit and walking because he was waiting for his new tires to come in. Couldn't he continue to drive on the old ones until your new ones came in, or did you drive them until the tread came off? So it was neither. The tire got a catastrophic rip in it from some kind of nail kind of thing that, I mean, ripped it. And so the car was not drivable. The car comes with no spare. So many cars now come with no spares. And the tires had to be special ordered. It ended up being 11 days for the tires to come in. It was supposed to be four. Ended up being 11. And so I got a lot of great exercise. I mean, my step counter from Garmin, the steps went way up. And uh, some days the weather was not so favorable. I got wet a couple of times waiting on public transit, but it worked out fine. And you gave me a ride twice, didn't you? I did. I was your Uber driver. Yeah, I You only gave that. me two stars. I was really upset about that. You know why you didn't stop to get me a double cheeseburger <laughs> on the way to and from? 
Yeah, I kidnap you and take you to a vegan restaurant. You would love that. <laughs> okay, Mac in Arizona yeah, says, my 18-year-old son is receiving a $100,000 settlement from a car crash last oh, year. Oh, is he okay? Thankfully, he re- has recovered. Okay. He will graduate from high school next month and is not planning to attend college. He is a painter at an auto body shop and likely will pursue a career in that. We're recommending he max out a Roth for this year and the next two years. That leaves him approximately $80,000 to potentially save for a shop of his own, future home, or to invest. Since he's already 18, we don't have control of the money, shucks, but we want to encourage him to be smart with it. He wants to make good choices with it as well. If this were your son, what would you recommend? Okay, so first of all, I'm so glad that he recovered fully from the accident. Second, you're on the right path with the Roth year after year after year, not just for a three-year cycle. Your son should keep putting money into the Roth year after year, even though you may use, he may use part of this money for a down payment on a house, buy a shop, whatever, because the Roth gives you this great advantage. The money grows tax-free and is spent tax-free if held till retirement age. But it also has a wrinkle that if he just keeps putting the money in and ends up not needing the money for a down payment on a house, it stays in. If he doesn't need the money to buy a shop, it stays in. And then it grows tax-free forever. We're talking about a number of years to get a substantial amount of that money in a Roth, but it gets them in the habit of building up future retirement savings. Doing that at 18, man, it puts them on easy street down the road like you cannot imagine if he keeps doing that. 6500 a year is allowed to go in the Roth. If at some point, he way before he's taken all of that 100000 because we're talking about 14, 15 years to get it all in a Roth, he'll still have a lot of money in there that's not in the Roth that he can then use for a down payment on a house. He can use it for buying a shop. But let's say it eventually all gets in there and at some point he needs money to buy a shop or buy a house. He can withdraw his contributions, none of his earnings, but his contributions tax and penalty free. So a Roth can be both a intermediate term savings account and a long-term tax-free investment account for retirement. It can play both roles in his life. In the meantime, what should he do with that cash? So if he's putting money into the Roth each year, the money that is outside the Roth, probably half of it could go in because of the number of years it would be till he could put that money in. Half of the remainder could go into uh, a simple index fund or balanced fund. Uh, Just go on Investopedia and read what a balanced index fund is. And the other half should go into a simple savings account at today's best interest rates, which right now would be somewhere uh, four point something percent. That would be the quickest back of the envelope thing I could say But the most important things you shared, you have a son who's very industrious. You have a son who doesn't want to blow this money, wants to build a future for himself, which is priceless. But the most priceless thing of all is he was injured in an accident and has made a full recovery. 
and what an exciting, great event all those things are about your 18-year-old son having that kind of maturity and also the recovery from the accident. And I want to thank all of you for being members of Team Clark. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe. If you get an opportunity, please give us a review. And if you like what we do, share it with someone in your life that you like, because they can benefit as well. Have a great day.